Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Office Hours Career Paths for PhDs. I am excited to share just another incredible, amazing, insightful guest that we have today, a PhD who was brave enough to take the leap and jump out into the industry. So I am going to welcome Dr. Brandeis Hill Marshall. She's the founder and CEO of Data edX Group. She's also the author of Data Conscience Algorithmic Siege on Our Humanity. Now, well, thank you so much for just making time in your schedule. And so you and I connected on LinkedIn, I want to say like a year ago, but you were in the process of planning this major conference. And so I was like, I need to wait until she has done the conference, decompressed from the conference so that we can then have this conversation. So I saw that it was amazing. Um, you just had a great group of women there. And so I'm happy that we're able to have you here. So let's just kind of jump right in. Let's talk about, you know, what prompted you to pursue the PhD? Ooh. <laughs> you just get in it. I mean, mm-hmm. no chasers. I mm-hmm. love it. So I pursued the PhD because education was so important to my parents and me, right? Mm-hmm. By default. Education can't be taken away from you. Mm-hmm. I was told that ever since I was a wee babe, um, every time I wanted to do something, I was like, well, you, you might need to have a degree for that. So pursuing the PhD for me was about, I wanted to get through as much school as possible. So I have to go back to school. Mm-hmm. I don't know about anybody else. <laughs> Both of my parents finished their um either undergraduate or a master's degree as while I was growing up. So I saw them go to school, mm-hmm. right, after work and uh, during the summer and things like that. So I was like, yeah, I, I, need, to, I need to school. I need to all the way school and get done with school. So I was like, the, the furthest I can go in school is PhD. So I'm going to get that. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, I finished my undergrad during the dot-com boom mm-hmm. bust. And I saw the tea leaves before the industry saw the tea leaves. I was like, this is not going to boom for much longer. I need to make sure I have a check coming in because I am not going back and living with my parents. Right. Um, So I need to figure something else out. And I knew that undergraduate education wasn't enough for me. I was like, I I got the basic concepts, but I don't really know, know computer science like I think I should. in order to be of benefit to a company. So let me just go over here and study some more. Okay. So now you get into the program and what are you thinking your career is going to look like once you're in your program? Girl, I had no idea. I mean, I was a McNair scholar, so I had an idea of how to get into graduate school and I understood Mm -hmm. the process of getting into grad school, but the whole grad schooling ing I had no clue what it was about. I didn't understand what was important in grad school. <laughs> like grades are important in grad school, trust. But what's really important is that that um, thesis if you're at the master's level or that uh, that dissertation at the PhD level. Like the rest of it is all preparing you for that work product. Like yeah. that's your deliverable, mm-hmm. right? And no one really in my orbit had that understanding. So I went to graduate school thinking it was like undergrad. Ah, okay. Okay. Mm. (laughs) And I quickly found out it was not. Yeah. Ooh, it's my glasses. (laughs) Just our glasses on that one. Just the glasses on that one. And... Then I was like, okay, I, I I need to I need to recalibrate myself and understanding because not only was I in school, I was also a teaching assistant. So yeah. as I said, I went to graduate school a minute ago. So I was grading programs that were on three and a half discs. Oh yeah, I remember. Mm. I was carrying around 50, 75, 100. Three and a half. Yeah, the floppy disk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I was doing. Okay. Um, early days of learning management systems, right? So I'm trying to 
figure out WebCT. I'm dating myself. Um, and all the other platforms that no longer exist or that were bought out by other platforms that we now use today. Right. So I was like, I got a TA. I got to go to class. I got to do research. I'm supposed to do all these three things. And, and the pay was crap. Yeah. So what was to do? How was to do this? So it was, it was a lot. It was a lot to try to figure out. Other people were having the same problems and conversations, but they might've known somebody that had finished their master's or finished their PhD or someone in their family. Um, and so then it just became about trying to find community in mm -hmm. graduate school in order to talk through some of the, the large and the <laughs> small pebbles in order to get through the program, like qualifying exams, yeah. like that professor that you're like, what did that professor say? Another thing that the professor say is on the test, what's going on? Mm -hmm. um, how do you create your dissertation topic? Like all these things where now there's helpmates, there's Twitter, there's um, LinkedIn, there's organizations that exist now. Uh, but when I was in school, there was like a dearth. You got to just find somebody that know and just latch on and hold on. Yeah. Now, at what point in your program did a career outcome start to formalize, crystallize? What was that? When did that happen for you? That happened probably about two thirds of the way through okay. after I had a couple of summer internships at research labs couple of people that I knew started to graduate and started to go into corporate um, or government labs or research labs. Um, and that's when I realized that that wasn't for me. Um, I didn't like that type of environment. Um, I didn't feel seen. Mm. I didn't feel like I really fit in the corporate space um, or the research lab space. It was a little too stiff for me. I wanted to have fun and laugh and people weren't doing either one. So um, what I was really good at was teaching because I had been a TA mm -hmm. um, for pretty much my whole graduate career. So I was like, well, teaching seems like I'm good at that. So I'll do that. And, oh, I don't have to do stuff in the summer and I get to possibly choose where I go. And oh boy, I was wrong about that too. We'll get to that. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and I was like, and then I could be, you know, a role model. I could be a mm -hmm. model. I, you know, I never had a black teacher. So maybe I can be someone's first black instructor inside okay. of this world of computing. So I was like, I'll do that. That seems impactful. That seems purposeful. That seems um, like something that would make sense for me to do. I felt like a purpose and a mission behind it. Oh boy. Mm. <laughs> Now, you having that revelation, which is always great, which I think about during my undergraduate years, I was so happy that I did internships because that helped me realize mm -hmm. that the thing I thought I wanted to do, I definitely didn't want to do. And exactly. when I made it to the doctoral level, internships didn't even cross my mind. Like I wasn't even aware. Really? And I think maybe it's because I come out of comm studies that that's just not something that we do. So, mm -hmm. well, not it's not something that most of us do. So maybe right. it just the field was something that was different, but it does help to just branch out there while you still have the covering of, you know, yeah. being a student to figure out what you want to do. So once you have this revelation that, okay, mm -hmm. definitely don't want to do that. I want to go teach. What next? Ooh, then it was a matter of doing the comparison game, which is where I went wrong. But um, the comparison game, which is, okay, People are graduating. What do they graduate with? If they are going to be a system professor, what do they have in their portfolio? Which mm -hmm. is publications. Mm -hmm. And I had no publications. Mm -hmm. I didn't have my first publications until five years into graduate school. Okay. And it was a, a paper I wrote by myself without my advisor because I was so frustrated. I was like, Everyone around me has papers published and I don't like I need papers published in order to do what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So um, so I was looking for places in order to publish. How do I get my name out there? How do I get what I'm doing out there? Um, I was looking at the interwebs and how rank 
algorithms were working inside of um, all of these search engine platforms. There was no conversation about that then. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of conversation about it now, though. Um, But uh, yeah, so I just was trying to compare myself to other people. And that's when I realized just how far, um, I guess, behind is the best word for it, Um, ill-equipped that I was in order to be an assistant professor. Um, And then I started seeking other people who were assistant professors and seeing what they were doing, what was important to, to move forward and to be an assistant professor. Where do I need to go? So I realized quite quickly that going into a institution and being a professor wasn't something that I was ready for either, okay. that I needed to be a postdoc. Mm-hmm. I needed to be under someone's tutelage to kind of learn the ropes, ask some questions, and then be able to move into a prof- uh, into a faculty role. Again, Lord. Well, we'll we'll talk through that. So, <laughs> you shared just some some things ahead of our call, but I'm curious to learn. So yeah. you have the conversations about you know what you should be doing in terms of postdoc, assistant professor. You did a postdoc. Yeah. What was that postdoc experience like for you? The postdoc experience was very lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that the postdoc experience would be one in which I was being groomed to be a faculty member at that institution or another institution. And it was really about me finding my research agenda and producing papers from my dissertation. So I learned to do stuff on my own, which again, as I look back, it was probably very gaslighty because other people were not having that experience, right? Um, I was just kind of off in my own little corner. I would kind of be brought out when they wanted, you know, a black voice uh, or they brought me out when they wanted to connect with a minority serving institution and wanted to know if I knew anybody like all black people know each other. I mean, when you have a PhD, you typically do know them all. Cause there's not that many, but at the same time I was like, y'all trash. What are y'all doing? What, what is this? What you talking about? Um, and so I, I, my experience was one where I learned a lot. I learned that there was a game to be played mm-hmm. and I spun that gaslighting type of situation to, oh, okay, there's a game. Oh, okay. oh, oh, bet. There's a game. Oh, my Virgo brain was like, oh, okay, you, you won't play a game with me. Oh, 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 you going to know my name by the time I'm done with this game. <laughs> and they did. mission accomplished mission accomplished so um i was i i I went ahead and did work through that postdoc Mm -hmm. and collected that little bit of coin reached out to another department that was looking for faculty that needed that type of expertise that i had in databases and then i went ahead and pursued um that faculty position um and then I wind up earning it and then became an assistant professor. Um, And it was interesting, my postdoc advisor, uh, when I had finally got another, you know, only had a couple of meetings with him. But when I got the meeting with him and I told him that I would be transitioning to this other department as as an assistant professor, um, his his response was pretty much like, oh, well, good, because it's because your postdoc is going to end in a couple of months and I have no funding for you. I was just like, no, that it was going to end. He was like, yeah, it's two years. It was two. That's what we agreed upon. So yeah, it was going to, it was going to end. So I'm glad you found something. That's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about. I'm thinking to myself. Wow. Okay. (laughs) All right. So it's good that you were proactive then. And that's what I learned in my postdoc is that you have to be proactive. So I was very proactive when it, when I got to the assistant professor position Mm -hmm. and I guess continued to be proactive because I realized, as I said, in my postdoc experience that 
this industry isn't about ready to try to give me the playbook or give me the blueprint or give me anything. I have to fight for it. So I was like, all right, you know, I'm a small chick, but listen, I will, I will scrap with the best of them. I'm going to get what I'm going to get. Y'all will not be denied. So, okay. That's what happened. Now, so you do your postdoc for two years, then you have your assistant professor position. How long were you there? Um, I was there for six years as an assistant professor. So um, I started in 2008 and then took tenure um, April the 4th of 2014. I remember the date. Oh, when I took tenure, I was jumping on tables. I was dancing. I literally had my laptop in one hand with playing music, going up and down the halls. People were just like, what is she doing? I was like, I just took tenure. I don't care. I'm going to celebrate myself by myself. I don't care. Now tell me, you have an interesting expression or a way that you describe it. So most will say, oh, I earned tenure, but I hear you say you took tenure. Kind of tell me, what's that difference? What happened there? So earned tenure means that to me, it means that you feel grateful that they you know, certified you as being worthy to, mm-hmm. to have the promotion and the tenure at associate professor level. Mm-hmm. No, I fought. Okay. I fought for it. I was one of the only, no, I was the only woman in the department wow. at the assistant professor level that was doing research. I had a terrible time getting graduate students Graduate students, some of the graduate students that I that I acquired <laughs> um, fought me tooth and nail, um, wanted me to do the work for them. I had a couple of those that I had to release back into the general pool. Like, I ain't doing your work for, I got the degrees. I'm not doing your work. Right. I had several talk back to me. Um, I had a terrible time getting funding. Um I was not being put on grants with other faculty, um, like other faculty of different genders and different complexions were. Um, and so I fought. So I took it. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I said lots of words directly <laughs> to uh, my department chair and to the dean of the college. Mm-hmm. I distinctly remember one question that I asked the dean in a very small meeting, um, about six or seven people. And I said, how am I being counted by this academic unit? And he just looked at me like, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm a black woman in American. So how am I being counted? Am I being counted three times? Because I'm the only black woman as a as a as a professor. Uh-huh. So I'm uniquely identifiable. So how am I being counted? Mm-hmm. He had nothing to say, and I was like, "That's my point. You can't you can't talk to me about." you being fair. You know, it was a whole conversation about we want to do things for the junior faculty. And I asked him that very poignant question about how am I being counted? (laughs) And he couldn't answer me because he never thought about the fact that I was uniquely identifiable just by the fact of my physicality in this whole college of, you know, I don't know, 200 or so faculty. And there were two black women and I was the only one on tenure track. Wow. And no other black woman had been had taken tenure in the establishment of that whole academic unit that was about 50 years old. How did you navigate that experience? So taking tenure obviously is not an easy process. Right. Neither is earning tenure. So earning tenure is already tough. Taking tenure feels like that's there's more work involved there, not just the physical work, but also this emotional labor. So talk to me about how you navigated that. What got you through that that time? What got me through everything, every other stage of my computer science career was like, I'm going to do this in spite of all of the non help that I'm getting. Like, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm still going to do it. Even if you don't tell me how to do it, I'm still going to figure it out. Like you, there's things that I'm going to do 
that you can't deny me the access. There was very much a fight um, mm-hmm. and a lot of emotional turmoil. So how I got through it was Fridays, I didn't come into the office. So one of my white male colleagues talked about, oh, yeah, research, I do a one day a week. That's research day. Well, I don't come into the office. He had young children um, and things. So he said, yeah, and it's kind of good because it give you know, I can spend time with my kids and stuff. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. I'll do that. So every Friday I wouldn't be in the office or I choose another day of the week, depending on the on the semester of my schedule. Um, I also did my best in order to, you know, write papers that were important to me that I knew that they were going to be published. So the mm-hmm. conferences that I uh, submitted papers to, maybe they weren't the A tier, maybe they were B tier. And then I would try for the A tier. Right. Um, I just whatever way possible that I could strategize to make myself in the best position possible, that's what I was going to do. So I tried to work my way through it. It got me to a certain place that was good, but it didn't get me over the edge. Um, Actually, there was another um, white woman professor in my department who actually was like, hey, you're brilliant. Come and work with this project with me put me on a grant, that really propelled me. She basically sat down and basically taught me some of her game. And that is what catapulted me. That's awesome. Yeah, it's so, awesome to find allies when when they're there and it's like they're willing to work with you because it is it can be quite isolating to be in a space where you're the only and you're having to do work that's already tough for people that don't look like you. And then you have to kind of go through that. So you took tenure, you're dancing in the hallways and you're, you know, you're celebrating. What's next for you? What was your next step? Um, I turned in my resignation. (laughs) No one sees that coming. Everybody's like, you did what? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, Jasmine. Um, So while I was in the tenure cycle, Mm -hmm. I had already put together my tenure package. And so I went ahead and submitted my application to a number of other different schools. Okay. Uh, Because again, I had a network of people now that were assistant professors, associate professors, some of them full professors. They were just kind of in this like loose group mm-hmm. um, of conversation. So that was the advice. Hey, if you're already going to put together your tenure package, you might as well shop it around to other institutions. Yeah. Because you never know what's going to happen with tenure. Okay. Makes sense. It's a cost benefit analysis to me. Got mm-hmm. it. So I wind up um, wanting to leave the institution anyway, because uh, I didn't see myself earning or taking full at that institution. So I shopped it around. I wind up um, having an interview and then signing with another institution. So once I had earned tenure, I sent my tenure letter to this institution. So then, because one of my criteria for moving institution was that I'm going to come with tenure. Because I was like, I'm not doing this mess again. I know I'm done <laughs> um, with this right here. So um, so I got, so the tenure letter um, that I received, I then sent to the uh, new institution. They then approved my tenure, um, put together a startup package. And then about a month after my tenure had been announced, I then turned in my letter of res- resignation and oh. said, I'm out. What was that like? What was it like? Girl, it was freeing. What you talking about? I was like. I don't have to sit in these meetings and look at a room full of portraits of white men surrounding me. What? Uh huh. This is wonderful. This is. I was like, yeah, there's nothing y'all can say. They tried. They like half tried. They like half baked it. There anything we could do? I was just like, y'all already know. Okay. I was like, yeah, no, there's nothing y'all could do. Because I had to fight for my pre tenure review. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, my that that happens in the third year. I'm supposed to have a pre tenure review. I, I got it was one page with like seven bullets. Wow, 
I was just like, I had to fight for everything. I no, I'm good. And you in the north and it's cold? No, I'm good. Like deuces. Bye, y'all. Once you (laughs) once you took the deuces to that institution with your tenure letter in hand, yeah. What were some of your next experiences? So the next experiences, it went from, oh my God, I'm so excited to be at this institution because I'm going to be with my people to, oh my God, I'm at this institution and I'm with my people and my people are wretched. And so, you know, you know, internalized white supremacy is a real thing for our community. And I'm just going to be very frank about it. I'm not going to mention the place. I'm not going to mention a whole bunch of the professional abuse I experienced because that's going to take us onto a a pit and a hole that is not what this conversation should be about. But what I will say is this, is that I realized quickly that I was too North for the South. Okay. Okay. And I, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Akron, Ohio, just a little town that has a couple of famous people from it. You might know one or two of them. Right. (laughs) Um, and we just don't mess around. Mm-hmm. We straight shooters. That's just how we are. And my ability to do Southern hospitality was not good. Okay. And I came from a PWI background. Mm-hmm. So I, and I follow the money. Mm-hmm. My dad worked for the IRS. So talking so money conversations aren't something that I have a fear of. Right. Well, let's talk about the money. Let's how the money flow. How did how, all those things? It was all hush hush, close to the vest. We can't talk about it. We can't do this. We got to do that. Got to do stuff for the culture, for the community. And I was like, hold up, but you pimping out the culture. You pimping out the community. Mm-hmm. How is this doing? This wait, hold up, wait a minute. Let, let me explain. What is what is this? So. My experience at the second institution was one where I was blindsided, gobsmacked at just the utter brilliance in the place that was being muted, including Mm. my own. And I was just like, all these people are so awesome. Why don't they have like their own like thing? Like, why aren't they promoted like this, that? And I was... That really struck with me. Okay. And um, and then I just was like, okay, they, they don't want that. You can't be bigger than the place. You, you. So I said, okay. So no one can be bigger than the group. Is what you're yeah, saying. no one can be bigger than the group. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay. I understand that now. I did not before. I understand that now. And so I got to move different. Okay. Now, what was the moment where you realized that you were going to leave academia? The moment. So so I have like this R&B song in my head. Y'all know the song. Okay. Um, Y'all know the song. I don't got to say the song. Y'all know the song. Um, The moment was... It was a, a, probably the one of the most painful moments. Mm. Um, I was chair of the department at the time, and the college administrator at the time wanted to come to, decided to come to the meeting. Not wanted to come, decided to come to the meeting in order to express the transition of the department because I was being removed as department chair. And I conducted that meeting with the college administrator there. And then the college administrator tried to close out my meeting. Okay. (laughs) And not on my watch. This is my meeting. Okay. <laughs> it 
was my meeting. I was department chair. I had not been removed yet. I was that was the that was what she was announcing to the department, but it was still my meeting because she was on my turf. Uh-huh. She was in my department, right? I wasn't in her office. She was basically in my office, right? Uh-huh. So I then decided to close the meeting by thanking the department for all the work they had done. Um, and there was a small department, about seven of us. Um, so I thank each of them for all that they had put into the department, thank the admin that had done fantastic work while I was chair. Yeah, I closed out the meeting, girl. Administrator got up and walked out. So I closed the meeting. And then... Wait, so, did you close it or did you shut it down? Because it sounds like I you showed it, it. I shut it down and left oh, okay. no crumbs. Okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I, I left no crumbs. Okay. And um, on that meeting. And so it was that moment I was like, ooh, this is, mm, I don't know if I can do this for much longer. And mm-hmm. then about an hour later, there was a memo from that administrator's office to the entire community um, at the institution, letting everyone know that I was no longer department chair. And I said, who do this? And I said, oh, okay, we go. Wow. Oh, you, you think you go psychologically, you know, handicap me? Oh, okay. And that's the moment I was like, I'm gonna have to get out. But I knew for sure that I was not going to leave before both of them left. Okay. Okay. I feel like there's so much here that we'll have to and talk about some things. <laughs> we can talk about some of the things, but we'll talk about some of those things offline, of course, but, of course. Okay. but now yeah. what you have all this experience, you know, right. you took tenure at one institution, you came into another with tenure. You are ultimately, you know, department chair yeah. at an institution what about entrepreneurship was the next step for you? Why not pursue another opportunity at another institution? For me, I felt like everything that I was doing was outside the box. And I kept getting pushback. I kept getting muted. I kept going, not right now, or ghosting me. Ooh, that was really, ooh, the ghosting. Oh, the ghosting in academia was huge mm-hmm. at both yeah. institutions. And about two to three years later, it would come back around. I was right. Then they'll be tapping me. Hey, could you, Dr. Marshall, could you come? And I'll be like, y'all, I'm about ready to give y'all Beyonce fingers. What y'all, what y'all, what are y'all asking me for? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so entrepreneurship for me was like, I want a place where I am not muted. Ah, uh, okay. And since y'all can't seem to see the vision, like I see the vision and y'all can't seem to trust me, even though I have a record of it, me being the bomb.com and me being the HBIC, y'all don't want to recognize Then Fine. I'll just do it myself. Okay. I'll just go my own way. And people started to ask me to speak. People started to ask me to consult on things. People wanted my thought leadership. I was like, all right, let's go. So let's, I want to jump in here. How did you get from, you know, I'm leaving to all of a sudden opportunities coming in? What what work, what happened in between time for that work to start to come in? It was me getting on social media. So because I was muted in my workplace, I made the way that I expressed myself on social media. And at the time it was the Bird app because okay. um, that's when the Bird app was popping. Now mm-hmm. it's not. Mm-hmm. Um but I would express my thoughts there. And that's where people started to be like, Hey, who is she? (laughs) I like what she's saying, Uh you know? And then I would get emails on the work email for things. And I would start to do speaking engagements. I was doing them for free because I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. Um, And then someone said, well, we'll pay you X amount. I was like, but pay me. Remember, I told you, my dad worked for the IRS. So money, I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, I can earn money doing that? Oh, oh, let's go, bet. Uh-huh. It's, then that was it. It was on and popping. 
Mm-hmm. And after that, it was like, so what's the honorarium? What's the honorarium? Yeah. What's the honorarium? And then the honorarium needed to be at a certain level mm-hmm. <laughs> at a certain point. I was like, okay, $500 is cute. But bills must like, be paid. Life must be lived. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, mm-hmm. but $500 ain't nothing to y'all. Because then yeah. I would start to look up who was asking me to speak and realizing what their pay was. And I was like, okay, so if you're earning 200K, why can't I get 5K? Right, right. Make the math math. Yeah. Because I am a computer science person, I'm a data person, so you need to make the math math. Why are you gonna offer me $500 or zero when I'm the one bringing in all the IP, when I'm bringing in all the goodness and the gems and dropping everybody's like, oh, she said that. Oh, that made sense. Oh, that's relatable. She said it in a snackable way where I can digest it and understand it. She's really good at X, Y, Z. That's what the comments I was getting. I was like, yeah, you know, no, you need to not do the $500. I'm going to need a real check to pay some bills. Now, how did you get to the company name Data Edix? How do we get there? So it, it obviously makes sense yeah. with your background, but I love yeah. to learn what informed the company formation. For me, I wanted something that was about data education because I was moving away from data science, okay. which is what a lot of people, especially on the Bird app, knew me for was data science education. Um, but I started moving away from data science, start moving just to data because data is in every industry. So data education. So that's data ed. Um, and then the X was the X factor. And that's essentially me. It's the human condition. I bring in that flavor, that sauce, that je ne sais quoi, right? I bring, I drizzle it over everything. Um, and it tends to be about black people. So I didn't want to put black in the name because I already knew that society would have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know what, let's go ahead and just say data at X group. And so if there's more people that come along, then that would be the group part. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, typically just go by data at X and just hit them, hit them with the data. <laughs> In addition to the speaking, what other services do you offer under your company? So outside of speaking, I do do consulting um, for a range of organizations. Sometimes it is short workshops. Mm-hmm. You know, helping companies and their workers understand that they are data people and what does that mean and their responsibility on that. That tends to be most of the other services. Um, and I am, of course, have Black Women in Data, which is a separate like stream under Data at X, which is all about the promotion amplification of Black women in the data industry, since we only count for 1%. And I want us to account for 13% of the industry by 2040. Um, so. Yeah, speaking, consulting, and then Black women in data. Those are the three things that Data edX Group does. Tell me more about the Black women in data, because you recently had a summit. That was last October, I believe. Kind of tell me yeah. what prompted you to bring that group together. Well, I've been wanting to do a summit for Black women in data for the longest time, probably about three or four years. Mm-hmm. But the pandemic hit and then all the other things happened. What I wanted to bring together were women that were experienced and seasoned to come together to actually invest in ourselves. Because what I noticed for myself and for other women in my circle was that we were mentors to the younger babies. I call them babies, college students, Mm -hmm. the babies. We're the mentors to them but we don't have any mentorship Mm. and we don't talk to each other. So we're doing what our parents have done, right? It's like one-on-one advising. That is exhausting. And we all are exhausted. The pandemic was exhausting. Mm. And so I wanted an event and a gathering of black women where they can unmask and they could have real conversations. And they didn't have to worry about what they said because there's going to be no babies around. Mm-hmm. They're not there with little ducklings behind them. Yeah, what interest you? And it wasn't going to be, you know, one of those, you know, 
tech swap meets, you know, recruiting sessions. I call them swap meets, but recruiting sessions. None of that. I wanted it to be more elevated in the conversation, more grown woman talk, because that's not something that I'd ever seen, not something I had ever experienced. So everything that a tech conference I had been to was, I did the opposite. Okay. So it was basically one track. The food was popping. No hard, crusty pastries with the brand muffin. And every time I say it, everybody started laughing. Like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah. Those conferences, I'm not doing that. It wasn't going to be in a hotel. So it wasn't going to be hotel food. It was um, going to be a space where you could actually have conversation and connect. And the companies that are part of the Black Women in Data Summit who sponsor, they are there more as a headhunting type of conversations versus recruiting conversations. Because it's really about each of these Black women are bosses. They're Mm -hmm. managers, they're directors, they've led groups, they're leading groups. Um, They're the only one doing the data organization, you know, concepts, right? Mm -hmm. They're already coming with an expertise. That means that the companies have to match that energy. And can they match that energy? Um, So that's why I wanted to bring it together was because there is this notion that once you've been in the industry for 10, 15, 20 years, that somehow you don't care about upskilling. Mm -hmm. And that's a falsehood. Um, that your expertise needs to be disseminated to the younger generation because that's all that you're really good for. That is crazy. But there is growth and career and professional development that we want as Black women, even when we've been in that workforce and in that industry for a number of years. And how do we have conversation with each other and connect with each other in meaningful ways? And then how do we lift each other up? Now, What's your transition been like from academia to entrepreneurship? Because it seems like you hit the ground running. You were like, oh, I'm out. Oh, business, speaking, summit. We'll get into the book. So tell me, what was it? How are you able to transition what appears to be so successfully? Well, I'm still transitioning out of academia as of now. Um, So I'm, you know, it's all about the money. So if the money wasn't mathing, I needed to you know, keep the plantation job. So I, <laughs> I feel the trauma through the interviews, the screen here. But... <laughs> through the plantation job. So um, the way I've done it is um, I figured it out along the way. Mm-hmm. I just try stuff. I'm open to trying things. And that is how I think I've been successful is that I just try it. If it doesn't work, then I try something else. Or I try it multiple times. And if it multiple times, it doesn't work. Okay, this isn't working. Mm -hmm. Let me stop acting like it's going to work. Because that's insanity. Let me just shift. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it was a point where I realized I needed a team. I needed at least a virtual assistant. And I struggled for a long time to figure that out. How am I going to pay for that? And I went through my own like turmoil over paying somebody for some things. I felt guilty about that. Mm -hmm. Um, I needed help and I felt guilty about needing help and then being able to articulate the help that I need and delegating was hard. Um, I said, I got to try it because what I'm doing right now ain't working. I need to sleep. I need to relax. Um, And so that happened about 2021 of Mm -hmm. um, getting a virtual assistant. Um, And then at the end of 2021, I wind up getting a, um, a coach. So I met with a coach weekly in order to help me just keep me accountable, the accountability coach, just keeping me accountable for what I say I'm going to do. So I show up for myself. And so I think that's, what's been helping me be so successful is the fact that I just try and I, I share it online. I mean, you can go back to (laughs) <laughs> any of the platforms are pretty much see, oh, she tried to do these posts. They didn't work, but she, but she kept posting. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's one thing I've learned that you have to give yourself grace to make mistakes or to not do things the way you wanted to do them. Because I, I hate to always use mistakes because sometimes it's like you you don't know what you don't know. And yeah. when something happens that you didn't expect and it has unintended consequences, you have to give yourself to you know grace to first learn from it. Don't just ignore it, but learn from it and move forward. But also being okay with just trying different things because you know the PhD if you pursue the PhD, you have this innate uh, desire to just learn and explore and just try new things. That shouldn't stop with the academic research. That can continue and flow into your professional life. Now, how did you find time to write a book (laughs) during this time? I don't know. I look back on that and I don't know how I found time. I, I, you know, as a PhD, what we're good at is procrastination. Mm-hmm. So I am very good at procrastination. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also as a PhD, what we're really good at is putting together a plan. Mm-hmm. So we'll have a plan that we'll completely ignore. <laughs> That's what that means. True. <laughs> so um, I put together the book because I divided it out into like, I need to get something done every month. Okay. And then I also decided very early on, I need accountability for this. So I created a newsletter mm-hmm. that I was going to write what was going on in my book writing journey every month. So I directly tied myself to producing a book because every month I had to tell these people something. Yeah. And then these people signed up. And I was like, oh my God, people are signing up for this. I got to write stuff. And so (laughs) I was like, I got to write to them. And then I got to write on this book. I can't just like tell them I wrote two sentences. Yeah. Yeah. So then I started thinking about, okay, every month I want to write a chapter. And so that's what I wind up doing. And it was, it was me. It wasn't no AI assisted tool. (laughs) It was me who wrote every single word. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, every month I basically got myself to a place where I was like, okay, I have a chapter done. That means I can now write to this group of people that I don't know that signed up in order to hear what this journey is like. And then I would get a little bit of reinforcement from that community that said, you're, you know, you're encouraging me to, to finish my book. You're encouraging me to even think about writing a book. Mm-hmm. And so then you, I said, procrastination is what we do. So I did everything I could to think of, like, this is how I'm going to stop myself from procrastinating is I have to somehow have a goal. And that goal was not to write goggly goop to a bunch of people on the interwebs. That was terrifying to me. So now tell me what, tell us all about your book, first of all. So give us the rundown. The rundown of the book. It is data conscience Mm -hmm. or data con science, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Mm -hmm. Um, Algorithmic siege on our humanity. It is separated Mm -hmm. into three parts to really talk about the data infrastructure and how it is the root of all of what we're talking about today, how data fuels the algorithms that's making the tech. Okay. So I talk through it in three different segments. The first segment is transparency, and that is being very transparent about the digital infrastructure before we had the internet. So I talk about the social and the economic, the political, the laws, the issues that happened in just telecommunications beforehand and how computational thinking we need to rethink Mm -hmm. because it's not really done well in practice. So that's the being very transparent about where tech is on the spectrum. It's at the end of the spectrum, not the beginning. Then I talk through accountability, which is the accountability of what's happening in our data pipeline, how we as humans, our physicality is divided up inside of the digital um, and inside of the data um, pipeline and what we can do in order to mitigate the inequities and the disparities. So I go through, that's the second part of the book. And then the last part is governance. And governance is all about what are some of the policies that have been enacted or tried to be enacted in order to help us, in order to help regulate what's happening online. So I talk through 
content moderation, some mm. data privacy concerns. Um, and then at the very end, the very last chapter is really my manifesto where I talk about what we could do. We could start to treat companies much more like people and put them in little timeout boxes. And what does data civics really look like in my view um, and how we center the data experience around the people, um, our home, our workplace, our communities, and then our whole society. Now, what was your process for publishing your book? Did you go the route of a publisher? Did you self-publish? What was that like? Yeah, I went with the publisher. It was the second publisher. The first publisher dropped me because it wasn't my voice and they wanted something else. Mm -hmm. Um, The second publisher was much more forgiving, much more excited about me just saying the things. They were fine with me saying things like white supremacy. Uh, (laughs) Right. And fine with me saying, you know what, there's not a checklist to ethics and responsible AI. Um, And um, so they allowed me the time in order to, to write whatever I wanted to write. I was able to update my table of contents, I think twice during the process as I was working through what I wanted to say, because it took a while. It took about three chapters for me to figure out what my voice was and what this Mm -hmm. book was going to be about, because I was just writing to write and I didn't really know where I was going and what my end game was. And then once I wrote like the first, I said the first three chapters or so, then I was like, oh, this is what I'm doing. This is what I want at the very end of the day. And then I was writing to that goal. Mm -hmm. And then every chapter build upon that. Um, So that, so the, the publisher just gave me the space and time um, in order to do it. And of course, uh, in advance in order to write the book um, and then editing, Woo, editing. That's a whole separate conversation. We could have a whole nother hour just on editing. Woo, mm. Now we've talked about taking tenure. Yep. Moving to a new institution. Yep. Um, closing your meeting because it was your meeting. And then launching the <laughs> summit and the company and the book. What's been the most impactful moment for you throughout this journey? The most impactful moment, I think, was October the 1st, 2022, when I was delivering the keynote mm-hmm. to my own conference. Yeah. I mean, it was an idea. Mm-hmm. about two years before that um, and to be standing there with people in the audience and people online, right. Had nearly 180 people awesome. um, between the two had, you know, eight sponsors had, you know, five or six community partners. It was paid for. Yeah. I was able to pay for it because of sponsors, because of ticket sales, because, 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 yeah. Standing there and to deliver that keynote. I was just like, y'all. And I said it in my keynote. I was like, y'all, this is blowing my mind that I did this. Mm-hmm. Now, if you could go back and give your first year self, first year doctoral student self, either a piece of advice or a warning what would you, what would you say to her? Oh my God. First off, I would give her a hug. She probably needs it. First year, she needs she it. Needed mm-hmm. it. She, needs, mm-hmm. ooh, she needs it. She needs it so bad. <laughs> needs it. And then probably a drink. Um, <laughs> and then um, I would, I would say everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Everything that's coming is supposed to come in the way it's supposed to come. Yeah. And so you're going to worry because that's your nature. Mm-hmm. But please know in the pit of your stomach that everything will turn out exactly the way it's supposed to. You're not making mm-hmm. any wrong moves. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't try to guide my journey any other way. Mm-hmm. I think. No. You, you, you can't because the decisions I made was because of the brain maturity that I had at the time. Right. 21 year old me could not 
take the words coming out of the mm, so-and-so me. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm not saying my name. Y'all can do the math. Y'all can math. Yeah, smart people listen to this. Y'all can math. Y'all know how old I am. Dang, y'all know. Couldn't take it because she yeah. was not ready for this version of Brandeis. Mm. Now, what advice would you give to your peers? So other tenure track faculty mm-hmm. that are considering taking the leap mm-hmm. outside of academia. Oh, I have lots of advice. Oh, my me. advice would be number one is about the money. Okay. The publications are good. Yes, do the publication. You can do that with other people. That's not a hard lift, really, because you know how to publish because uh-huh. you got a PhD. You, you have a publication, which is your dissertation. So you know how to publish. The real question that you need to ask is about how to get, how to manage, and how to get more of the money. Okay. But now people have a hard time talking about money and they, they yeah. don't want to make everything they do about money. So how do you reconcile that? You need to pay your bills. That is, yeah. <laughs> These are defects. You, I say you go and you look up a person that you admire and you see how much they're getting paid. And a lot of places that are public institutions, you can see how what their base salary is. And you can also see what they're earning on top of their base salary if they have a secondary position. Mm-hmm. And then you come back and ask me a question about money. Mm. They tend to be men. They tend to be of a certain age. They are making money. Yeah. They don't might not say the word money like I say the word money, but they're mm-hmm. asking about compensation. They're asking about their roles and their duties. They're asking about, well, what's my uh, cut of this particular project? Mm. How am I going to support my students? That's another way of saying money. Mm. How am I going to support summer activities? Got it. Another way of saying money. Got it. But you need to you need to understand that in order to make sure that you're able to produce the level that you want to produce, you're going to need the financial and the administrative support. And that needs to happen based upon some green. Got Period. It. Yeah. You can't do all the research experiments mm-hmm. yourself. Your students are eventually going to graduate. So you're going to need to get more. Mm-hmm. You're going to need to recruit. You're going to need to coach. You're going to need to mentor. You're going to need to research advise. You also need to write letters of recommendation. How are you going to be able to do all these things as an academic if you don't have the funds? Right. So how are you attracting students? If you get a grant, who is managing that grant? How do you know the management of the grant is going well? How are you getting payments out? I mean, there's a lot of money, the questions around the money when it mm-hmm. comes to grants, which again, I think I should just do a master class on because mm-hmm. it like, ooh, money. You need to understand how much money a graduate student costs you in mm-hmm. a grant. How much of the grant do you actually get? You in your pocket. Mm-hmm. Because a $1 million award, you're probably only going to get, ooh, you have a cap or whatever 20% of your salary is at Uh, most institutions. Okay. So your summer salary is at most two months. So that's eight weeks. Y'all do the math. Got it. And those are the things that, you know, people don't talk about that. They don't talk about that at all when it comes to, you know, managing a grant. Well, one, landing a grant then managing it and then being confident and comfortable in making sure that you can support the the people and staff that you need to support in order to accomplish your work. So, yeah. And, and also typically as black people, we tend to get the other duties as assigned roles. Mm. Need to ask for compensation on that. If you are tapped to be an assistant Dean or, Something. What is the compensation? Do you get a course release? Do you get an extra check? Is that a 12-month appointment if mm-hmm. you become college leadership? Or is it a 
a still a nine month or 10 month appointment as faculty mm-hmm. because there were expectations when I became chair that it was like 12 months. I was like, I'm not being paid 12 months. Yeah, Y'all better stop. I'm not coming in to get the mail. What's what you talking about? <laughs> She's going to stay right there until the admin comes back and gets it. Uh-uh. No, y'all crazy. You want to call me in the, in July? <laughs> you better. Oh, I don't know who you're talking to. You ain't talking to me. That ain't me. Nope. Now, this has been such a great conversation and I've learned a lot and I'm going to make sure I follow up with you offline. Um, <laughs> you want all the tea. <laughs> I want to find out what's going on. Like, I know a little bit, but I don't know enough. <laughs> But tell me, how can our audience get in contact with you? Where can they follow you online if they want to buy your book or join your community or just to, you know, just to learn from you? Yeah. So um, follow me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place now. Mm -hmm. Um, And my book is available where all books are sold. You can get it at Bookshop. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it at Wiley, who is the publisher. Um, as far as following my writings, I'm on Medium, so you can follow me on Medium. Um, I also have a newsletter called Rebel Tech Newsletter, um, so you can go to my website, BrandeisMarshall.com, and you'll be able to sign up there um, for my newsletter, even see some of the newsletters, so you get to see what the little flavor that I bring. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's how you can get in touch with me. Hey, I'm on the socials, just not the bird app room. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been amazing. And also thank you to our audience for watching. Make sure that you subscribe to our channel and share this video with a PhD that you love.